this week, Matthew, well actually this week and next week is Matthew 13, 14, 15. Uh, I, I, I tell this to Jesus Christ Superstar, period. This is when he is at the peak of his uh, uh, public draw. He is getting constantly huge crowds. He gives kind of his uh, teachings about his kingdom. He is very, very popular. Uh, the opposition really hasn't started uh, arising yet. Uh, one of my favorite verses in Matthew is next week. Uh, and then you're going to see as he starts to separate himself from the four major sects that sit in Judaism at the time. Uh, and just to orient you a little bit where we're at, this is the structure of the book. Uh, as we said, this book was written in a very distinctive style. There is a narrative which is Jesus moves and does things, and then he has a series of teachings. There's another narrative and teaching. He does this five times. Uh, the reason for the five, most people think, is because this is written to the Jews. That is the five books of the Torah. Uh, the, the discourse is that he talks about, first one is the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is his introductory teaching to what the kingdom is going to be like. Uh, the second major discourse is in uh, chapter 10, which we did a little bit last week and the week before, which is the commission of the apostles when they, and the disciples when they go out for their short-term, uh, first short-term mission, if you will, away from Jesus. This week, we're, we're, chapter 13 is the parables of the kingdom. He teaches parables here for the entire chapter. Uh, and then the next two will be uh, church life and then the, the Olivet of the Mountain of Olive Discourse at the end, which is actually a couple chapters. So that kind of gets you, we're, we're at the peak. This is the middle of the book. Uh, Jesus is preaching to large crowds every time he preaches. And just to give you a little, also to get you oriented, uh, everything that kind of occurs, occurs around the Sea of Galilee here. Uh, this week he's going... Uh, up to Capernaum, he goes to Nazareth. Next week, he's going to go up to Tyre and Sidon, and then the week after that, here. But he pretty much sits, everything's around the Sea of Galilee, which is a Jewish area, Jewish area here, Gentile area here. Uh, a lot of uh, languages in this area are Greek, Syriac, Aramaic, and a little Hebrew. Most people up here would speak uh, Aramaic as their standard tongue. All right, any questions to date? You know, we, we, we're covering the book pretty quick, so this is not, we're not going super detailed on anything. Uh, as we said, Matthew, as you remember, he wrote this book to the Jewish, to the Jews to explain to them that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he, among all the books, has the most Old Testament quotes. Uh, and there are uh, ten statements in the book of Matthew where he says, Jesus did this to fulfill the scripture. Uh, 
And the one we're in today is 1335, Jesus speaks in parables, but you can see all these like this. The virgin birth, the escape to Egypt, uh, the murder of the male infants, uh, he grows up in Nazareth, uh, he establishes, he's teaching in Galilee, uh, he heals diseases, he's the servant. All these are scriptures that the Jews would know by heart, especially the fact that a lot of them come out. You see, Isaiah is very heavy in here. The Jews would know Isaiah. So when Matthew starts quoting these prophecies, they'd immediately jump and they would know the scripture that he's talking about. Uh, there are other fulfillments in the book that uh, he that Jesus fulfills a prior prophecy, but Matthew doesn't necessarily say, and Jesus fulfills a prophecy. Uh, as you see here. And uh, this week we're going to talk about chapter 13, the fact that Jesus uh, speaks in parables. And which of course brings up the always exciting question, what is a parable? You know, we hear it all the time. We've all, if you've grown up in church, you've heard parables all the time. And in fact, if you've not grown up in church, you know parables. Aesop, everyone got the stories of Aesop, the Greek, those are all parables. Those are Greek parables. Uh, so we call them fables. You know, you probably learned them as Aesop's fables. They're at, the Greeks would have called them parables. So they're, they're stories that explain a different, a greater truth. Over here, I forgot to put this in a slide. In Greek, parable means to lay beside. Para means beside. In my, in my business, your parathyroids sit next to your thyroid. That's where that comes from. Uh, the, the Arabic Hebrew is mishal, which means shadow. Which I actually, I like. It's a better description of what a parable does. It's a shadow. It's a representative of the truth but it's not the whole truth as you would know it. So it's a shadow. Uh, parables are, there are, for the academicians, there are six parts to a parable. There's an intro, uh, there's an introduction of characters, there's a plot, there's a conflict, there's a resolution, and then at the end there's a call to action. Now, I mean, as you, the first five is any, is a good story, right? If you're a storyteller, that, you know, that's what a story is. The difference is the parables uh, call to action. And to make it easier to remember, uh, this, you're being oriented. Oriented. Is that correct? My speller? Yes, all right. I'm a doctor, I'm not a speller. I dictate everything, it's got auto, auto check on it. No, I'm not a writer either, that's correct. <laughs> Again, what did I say, what's my occupation? There you go. God puts you in places where you're supposed to be, right? Uh, and then this, there is a disorientation that, that occurs. So the story sets you, sets you up one direction. And then in a parable, there is an intentional disorientation that occurs that gets you off where you think the story is going to go. And then there is a re 
orientation to where the rider or the speaker or the parable wants to take you. And included in that in the reorientation is a call to action or call to change. So parables are used as a way to teach a principle and a way that allows you to remember it, but it always includes that if you do this thing, you need to change here. You need to do this. So th this for me is easy to remember, orient, disorient, reorient. That's what the parable does. And uh, it's the other thing about parables is that they only talk about one thing. There is a single theme of the parable. It will, and that's what the speaker talks about. Uh, and parables were uh, widely, widely, widely used in that day. If you're really interested, you can borrow this book, The Parables, Jewish Tradition and Christian Interpretation. This entire book is parables of the first and second centuries from Jewish uh, rabbis and comparing them to how the Christians interpreted versus how the Jews interpreted them. And then some of the parables that you'll see that actually show up in the Bible were had similarities to a lot of what the rabbis were teaching at the time. Uh, and they're and so the, the Jewish rabbis for centuries prior to Jesus had been using parables to get their people to remember things. Uh, my favorite parable in there was the parable of the fat man and the donkey. Uh, and a Jewish rabbi was saying that there was a fat man who owned a donkey. Uh, and uh, he went on a, on, a, on a trip, a long trip. And the... The fat man was saying as he was riding this donkey, when will this trip end? And the donkey was thinking, when will this trip end? So when the trip ends, who's the happier? <laughs> that, that's the part of the parable. You have to figure out who's the happier. <laughs> and so that, that is a, uh, was a Jewish parable from the time. Uh, so when we get into this chapter 13 uh, it's, it's a series of four parables an explanation and four more parables and there's actually another explanation tucked in here this is the only time when Jesus really explains his parables uh, the rest of the time when he gives parables uh, he just gives the parable here is a list, for those of you who want to be complete, uh, of all the parables in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the, one, and the ones that are in all three books, and both books, and other books. So you see Luke has a whole series of parables that are not in uh, Matthew or Mark. And Matthew's got a bunch that aren't in the others. And a lot of that has to do with, they use, they, Jesus talked you know, you think, you think about the fact that he taught for three straight years. Matthew, who is the longest of the book, has five discourses of Jesus, which you can read in about 15 minutes. So there has to be tons of teachings that Jesus taught that are not written in these books. 
and so, as we know, because you can see that there's not a lot of crossover between Matthew and Luke as far as which parable uh, they write. And a lot of times they write the parables that they are using to uh, move their story forward. Uh, so you see in here Matthew 13 in here, and then we get into the uh, later on teachings as he moves towards uh, Jerusalem. He gets another series of parables when he does his public teaching. I will, if you want, just let me know and I will email you that so you don't have to try to write that down real quick. The, uh, the 26 parables and what they do. Alright, so let's start at the first part of 13. As you remember, he was healing, uh, he, he's moving around uh, Galilee at this time, and he comes uh, up to, he's, he's by the, obviously he's by the lake, uh, and so the same day Jesus went out of the house, sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. This we know from history was a not an abnormal thing for teachers to do because that part of Galilee is very hilly and it's a natural amphitheater and so if you sit you can talk and the people can hear you so uh, Jesus you know a lot of times we think Jesus was like the first person to do all this that he suddenly had this great idea I'm gonna get in a boat and people are gonna hear me Jesus grew up in this area this is what people did uh, Remember what we talked about early on in history, there are lots of messiahs slash teaching rabbis that, that were growing up in this area. Uh, from 4 BC to 10 AD, or CE if you prefer, you know, we know there's at least five messiahs that lead active rebellions in uh, Judea. At least five that require the Romans to put them down. That's how we know that there are because if the Romans have to do something, the Romans are great record keepers. They keep a record of who they, who they sent to put down the, the rebellion, how much it cost them, how many people did they kill, how many people did they sell into slavery, uh, et cetera, et cetera, from every one of their trips. Uh, because the main reason is that when you sold someone to slavery, you owed a tax. And so the governor knew, he wanted to know how much tax he was getting. Uh, so it's very funny. I mean, basically everything is taxes. Uh, all right. He told them many things in parables, saying, uh, first parable, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path. The birds came and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no roots. Other seed fell among the thorns where it grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And then my favorite part of this thing. So you got the disciples who have lived with him for probably 18 months at this point. And uh, this, is a, this little next section here is an inset. They didn't do this while he was teaching. They didn't knock him on the shoulder in the boat and go, hey, explain this to us. This is probably after they get back to shore. You know, they listened to him preach all day. 
Because remember, you've got thousands of people here that Jesus did not give eight parables and say, hey, see y'all later. He talked all day long to them. And we know, because we're going to get to the feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, that he talked so long that people went out and had no food and they were hungry. And so this is an inset from Matthew because you know he's looking back on this 20 to 30 years later and writing this story. And, he, and so the disciples come to him and say, why do you speak to the people in parables? Because they want to know uh, why not be just more out, be exactly, uh, tell us exactly what you think. Uh, because when you look back on Sermon on the Mount, there's very few parables in there. He's very explicit on what the character of a uh, person who's in the kingdom of God would have. And then he replies, uh, which is very confusing, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Uh, whoever has been given more, they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak in parables. And then he quotes Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. Though seeing they do not see, although hearing they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will ever be hearing and never understanding. You will ever be seeing and never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. And so the question with this parable is is, is Jesus hiding truth from people in a way that tricks them? Because you, you'll, you'll see this said. Uh, and you'll also see this is where uh, some of the, uh, the Gnostics start coming out where there are levels of knowledge in Christianity. Uh, there are, and you'll, you'll, you'll see this for the last 2,000 years. There are, uh, oh, what's the, Scientology is a big one that does that right now, right? Your base level and, you know, as you, ex you get more experience, you, you know more knowledge, you become deeper, and you're, you're a better Scientology Christian. And so a lot of people, there are Christian outreaches do the same thing. The more you know, the better you are. The, the better Christian you are. Uh, I don't think that's what he's saying here. Uh, the, this early, uh, I mean, you'll see this a lot in, in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Uh, they see, but they do not see. They hear, but they do not understand. Uh, that's a familiar way of saying, uh, you're not really listening to me. You're hearing the words, but uh, how, how many of you go in first service? Very similar to what Josh number two uh, preached this morning is that religion sometimes gets in the way of the truth. 
And that's what Jesus, you're, you're going to start to see from here on out in Matthew, this conflict arising. That Jesus is going to lay out, here is what the kingdom of God is. And it's going to deviate markedly from what all the sects of that day were looking for. From the Sadducees to the Pharisees to the Essenes to the Zealots. That they're all looking for something else other than what Jesus is, is showing. And so, same thing in, in, in when Isaiah writes this, he's telling the same thing, is that you've got to look towards God. Uh, when you're absolutely sure you're right, you don't listen to other people. And they did, the people in the time of Isaiah were not listening to Isaiah because they thought, we know what religion is. We know what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, and so uh, I think that's what he's saying here is that I'm laying truth out. If you're open to that truth, you can see it, you can understand it. You can, to take it to your heart means you internalize it and you act on it. Uh, to the Hebrews, there was not a... If you took something in, you used it. So if you, to act on it, to believe it meant you act on it. You could not believe one thing and do something else. Uh, any questions? Because this can be a little confusing. It, it puzzles me when it, at the very end it says many prophets and righteous people. When righteous people, I always think about that as someone who is trying to follow God's will. But maybe it's more self-righteous that there he's people who follow the law and not really the well, I, what, what this verse is talking about here, 16, is the prophets were looking forward to the Messiah. The righteous people were looking forward to the Messiah. And so all the Old Testament is looking forward to the Messiah. And what Jesus is telling them is, you are standing with the Messiah. You get to see me. You get to hear me. That all these people wanted to do, but they died before the Messiah came, before I came. So this little verse here is him telling, saying, do you guys know how lucky you are? You are standing in the presence of the Messiah. So you are here when the kingdom of God is established. Another parable. And they told him another parable. And so now we're, we're leaving that little inset and now we're back to his original sermon. He's still on the boat. He told him another parable, the kingdom of God is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. While everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. Uh, we actually have writings from the first century of this actually occurring. Uh, the, the weed is called Darnell. Uh, it's actually in the same family as wheat, so it looks like wheat. It just does not produce fruit like wheat. So. Uh, there were there are stories of people who were enemies and so you would sow wheat and then your enemy would come along and throw the Darnell in that would overtake your field and so if you were uh, if you were unwise Darnell is, it, it has lots of very a very fancy root system if you tried to pick the Darnell out of your wheat field you would pick all the wheat out as well uh, 
And so the servants come to him and say, Sir, sir did you not sow good seed? I mean, like anything else, you can have seed. You know, we've all planted our yards, right? And you put cheap seed. What's the cheap seed always have in it? Weeds. And so when your grass grows, you get weeds in that. You, the same thing in the first century. If you, know, if you had good seed, you had lots of wheat and very little weeds. If you had bad seed, you had more. And so they said, didn't you sow good seed? Where'd the weeds come from? Sir, now, the other thing to understand here is the servants are the guys who actually, who actually sowed the field. The rich guy did not sow the field, right? He hired people to do that. These are the people that he hired to do that. And they're saying, we put the, you gave us the seed. We put it out. It was good seed. There's no, there shouldn't be weeds in it. And then he replies, an enemy did this. And the servants ask him, do you want us to go and pull it up? Like I said, he's experienced enough to know Darnell gets in with all the other things. If you pull it up, you can pull up your wheat. Uh, and he says, no, while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let us grow together and harvest. Darnell, when it grows, has no uh, uh, fruit on it, like a wheat, the wheat head, the wheat germ. So it's very easy to tell at harvest which is wheat and which is the Darnell. First collect the weeds, tie them up to, and bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. And that's what they did. Darnell was a, a fuel for people. You would take bundles and throw it in your fire and use it to start fire with. Uh, and so what he's saying in this parable is a lot of things, as you go through life, sometimes people look alike. You have to tell them by the fruit. When, they, when, you get, when people bear fruit, you know if they're, if they're godly people, if they're citizens of the kingdom of God or not. Parables of the mustard seed and the yeast. Told him another parable. It's like a mustard seed. Uh, the man took and planted his field. It's the smallest of seed, yet when it grows, it becomes a large, uh, it becomes a very large bush. Uh, almost a tree. Uh, and birds come and perch in its branches. As a Jew, uh, this little statement here, this is one of the things that we miss that to the Jews they would not miss this. In the Old Testament there are prophecies about as the kingdom grows other countries are uh, uh, talked about as being different types of birds. So when Jesus says so all the birds come and perch in its branches what he is saying is all countries of the world are going to come to the kingdom of God. And then he told him yet another parable. The kingdom was like yeast. Uh, the woman took and mixed in about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through all the dough. Uh, part, of, part of this is, uh, Jesus does a lot of hyperbole in his speeches. Those of you who bake, how much, if you take 60 pounds of dough before you put yeast in, how much bread is that going to make? Oh, you're going to feed an army with that. Uh, and so part of this is a little bit of hyperbole here. And they go, and so all the women who, who make bake bread who are listening to him in this group are all laughing at this point. Because, you know, when you, when you do yeast, you're cooking for your family. You're doing just a small bowl, not 60 pounds. But what he was trying to say here is that uh, the yeast, which is the kingdom of heaven, can even though this is a ginormous amount of yeast. 
a little bit of flour, a little bit of yeast can leaven that whole thing. So that's going to be the kingdom of heaven, is that it's going to start small, but it'll eventually go throughout the whole world, which is the 60 pounds of flour. And then he spoke all these things to crowds in parable. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So it was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world, which is Psalm 78. Uh, and the Jews would, of course, instantly un- recognize that without, because in Matthew it doesn't say Psalm 78. I had to look that one up. The Jews all know that one instantly. Now, parables of the hidden treasure in the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven was like treasures hidden in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again, went to his joy, sold all he had, and bought the kingdom. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. Basically the same meaning of both these parables. Jesus is saying, the kingdom of heaven is the most valuable thing you're going to have. Acquire it. It It is more important than anything else. Any thoughts, questions? I guess the kingdom of heaven represents the gospel, the belief in Jesus, or right. The king, because the theme of the book of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven is here. What Matthew is teaching us is that Jesus is the new Moses and the kingdom of heaven is here. Those are the two themes of the book. And so when Matthew says kingdom of heaven, what he means is uh, we we would interpret that as church. The church that Jesus came to establish is here. And so that's Matthew's the one that calls the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the other writers will use different terminology, but he always calls it the, pretty much the kingdom of heaven. Uh, parable of the net. Now, this is probably not one you hear a lot taught. Uh, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down the lake, caught all types of fish. When it was full, they pulled it to the shore. They sat down and collected the good fish in the basket and threw the bad fish away. And this will how it be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them in a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So a lot of the themes of the parables are, you know, what's it going to be like? What's the fruit of the people? That's how you tell the good from the bad is the fruit. Uh, and that at the end, there will be a reckoning. The good fish go in the basket. The bad fish get thrown in the fire. And this, this is a uh, Jewish rabbinic taught, thought at the time used this particular word all the time, this phrase all the time. Throw them in the blazing furnace, they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A very, very common uh, description of bad things happening. So, you know, you got good, you got bad. It's really hot, it's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, they didn't have a, a theology. Our theology of hell is considerably different than what they were thinking 2,000 years ago. So they, they know it, but they know it's bad. And then verse 51, have you understood all these things Jesus asked? And the disciples said, yes. This is my addition, just like a two-year-old. 
they clearly do not understand what Jesus is saying. But you know, how, how many of you, when you talk, you know, when you yell at your children or instruct them, uh, and they look at you, do you understand me? Yes. And then they go right back out and do and show that they have no idea what you're talking about. The disciples do the same thing. Uh, it's clear at this point, I mean, you can just look at the rest of the book of Matthew and in Mark and Luke and John uh, and early Acts. They didn't really understand at this point. They are, they're going to look back and understand. But when, when they replied this to Jesus, they had no idea what they're talking about. Uh, and, and we know this because there's another storm coming up and they're going to be in the, in the boat. And they're clearly not thinking Jesus is the ruler of the universe. And a lot of this, you know, the, the disciples and the twelve apostles are, remember, they're, they're still looking for something that, what they're looking for in the kingdom of God is not what Jesus is teaching here. And that's the important part, is that they've not yet figured out that he's not establishing an earthly kingdom. He is not establishing a military power. Uh, he is not establishing a temple-driven kingdom. They all think that they're all looking for the next Elijah. He is going to say, no, I'm the Messiah, and he's going to split. And you're going to start seeing that split in the next couple chapters. Yes, because the kingdom of heaven, it has to start with the personal relationship of Jesus. And that's what Jesus says over and over and over again. It's not doing these series of acts. You know, it's not praying the correct prayer. There, you know, there are a lot of prescribed prayers that they had to pray. It's not doing sacrifice at 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock. It's not doing all these acts. It's, how, it's internalized. How are you in your heart? How are you acting? How are you treating other people? How, what's your motivation? Uh, that is the kingdom of heaven. So it's that a relationship with Jesus and then that relationship expressed to the people around you. Because remember, if you go back to Sermon on the Mount, his first teaching, one of his most common phrases is, don't be a hypocrite. Don't say one thing and do something else. In fact, if you saw the teaching this morning, what, what, what was Paul getting on Peter about? You're a hypocrite. And, you know, so that is a huge teaching is be authentic, be real. And uh, I said, I said that's, that's what Paul just gets all over Peter about. He says, you're not real. You, you've gone back. And then this is the, the, the last of the uh, parables that he wrote down. Uh, Therefore, every teacher of the law that has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like an owner of a house who brings out his, uh, his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And because remember, Jesus studied the what we call the Old Testament, the writings that the Hebrews had. And to him, there are treasures in there. And so what he's saying is the teachers of the law are those who study uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books. They have treasures which are what he calls old. But the kingdom of heaven is going to introduce them to new treasures which are new. Well, new. Treasures which are new. 
and the fact that you have it's the completion of the old law it's not a replacement of the old law it's completion so that the old law still has treasure in it that you need to understand but there's also going to be new that comes from being a disciple of mine All right, so that, that's the eight parables and plus some of the, te the description. In the middle of the chapter he goes into, he has to explain to the apostles what he means. And like I said, this is the only time really in Matthew that's written down exact, when Jesus actually goes to them and says, here's what I meant about that. The rest of the time, uh, he puts the parables out so people can hear them. Uh, and like I said, parables are generally single, they're single topic, and so they're, they're not super hard to understand, but if you choose not to understand them, it's pretty easy not to understand them. Does that make sense? All right, and now this very little end at the end of the, he's done with his teaching section, he's about to go into another movement section. And like I said, he, he's sitting around the, the Sea of Galilee. He grows up in Nazareth, not long, uh, not far away. And then when he finished these parables, he moved on from there. Uh, coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? They ask, isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters here with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Uh, we, we've all seen this. This is, you know, Nazareth is, a, is not a metropolis by any stretch. It's a small city. Uh, that was heavily, if not exclusively, Jewish. Uh, and so he starts teaching, and he, when he teaches, he doesn't teach like the rabbis teach. Rabbis quote other rabbis. They quote their teacher rabbis. And so a rabbi at this period would say, uh, who's from the school of Hillel, and Rabbi Hillel said, and then he'd quote him. And then Gamaliel says, and he would quote him. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus teaches like, remember, Jesus is only probably 30 years old here. And so in the rabbi world, that is still I'm a student level. Most, most 30 year olds would not be rabbis with their own people around them. Uh, and so where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They Remember, they're in the middle of the area. They know he's, he's raising the dead. They know he's healing sick. People are flocking to him to have that done. Hundreds, if not thousands, we'll see in the next couple chapters, thousands are showing up to hear him preach. Uh, and all they, all they can think of is, we knew him when he was a two-year-old running around here. And we know his brothers, you know, and you'll know these two because they both write books of the Bible, James and Judas. Uh, and his sisters are with us. Uh, 
And then Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own home. Uh, which is not, a, when you think about it, yeah, that, I can see that. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now this brings up the question is, did, they, did their lack of faith stop him from those ability to do miracles? Or why did he, it didn't say he didn't do any, it said he didn't do many. And, and why, what do we think about that? I think you have to come and ask him, don't you? Did he do any miracles where people didn't ask him for a miracle? Well, I mean, it comes it comes back to what are the purpose of the miracles? I mean, Jesus never does miracles just to do a miracle, right? Exactly, it validates who he is. So the fact that their lack of faith in him as the Messiah. There was no need for him to validate, to prove that to them, because they they didn't believe him. And so he'll talk about a little later in the book. He'll talk about it. the Pharisees will come to him and says, "Hey, give us a miracle, and we'll believe in you." And Jesus says, "Look, look at my track record. There are people around living today who were not living when I showed up." I raised them from the dead. So if you don't believe that, you're not going to believe if I do it now. And this is kind of, the, I think, the same thing of, there are people, I mean, they're in Nazareth, they're surrounded by all his miracles. And if you don't have, if you don't believe that, doing another miracle is not going to, is not going to change that. So I think that's what, because there are several places, there's three places in the book of Matthew we'll see, this is the first one, where he says he doesn't do, doesn't do miracles because of their lack of faith. And I think it's that of, there's no purpose, because he's clearly capable of doing miracles, but there's no purpose for doing that miracle because it's not going to accomplish anything. All right, I'm actually one and a half minutes early. Any questions? So that's the 13th chapter. It's the middle teaching of his five teachings in the, in the Matthew. He is the most popular he's going to be at this point. He is commanding crowds of thousands. Uh, he is going to start... His early teachings are, are very uh, open. He starts moving to parables at this point. Because you, in order to interpret the parable, you have to have faith in him. You have to believe that he is the Messiah. And then you could, when you look at it from, if you look at that parable from that orientation, you can see the truth in it. If you choose not to believe he's the Messiah, then the parables are just stories. And so the next little section, which is the next two weeks, is him starting to move around a little bit more and he will get in a much more conflict starting the next chapter with the powers that be. I mean, he's already in a little conflict now, but he's going to get a lot more as we move up, leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. So Matthew is starting to, you're starting to see the conflict in the book starting to build 
because Jesus is now speaking parables which separates him so that, like I said, you have to have faith in him in order to interpret that parable. And then you're going to see, moving on the next six or eight chapters, he's going to get into lots of conflict to the point that, like I said, in the end of the book, he's crucified and he undergoes resurrection at the end. All right. Anything else? See you next week. Thank you. Chapter thir- uh, 14, 15.